All right, this morning I want to continue our discussion that we started last week on priorities. Last week we talked about priorities. We asked a question, where are your priorities? Children's Church, you may be dismissed. We talked about godly priorities and where are our priorities. And today I want to continue to talk about the priorities of life and how important they are and that godly priorities are absolutely necessary And so today I want to focus on when we determine them. So I'm going to talk about determining our priorities in the good times, before the bad times hit. Not only know where to place our priorities, but we know when to place them so that we're ready for the battle when it comes. But before I even say that, I I want to say this. I I want to be very careful that we understand that whenever we talk about our relationship with God. It's more important that we know that it's not about me and it's not about you, but it's about God. Our relationship really is centered on Jesus. And it's not about what I've done to earn my relationship with Jesus. It's about what he's done to give me an opportunity for relationship with Jesus. It's more about what the Holy Spirit is doing in my life so that I can maintain my relationship with Jesus. It's more about God the Father loving us so much that he sent Jesus in the first place and that he's provided a path back to Jesus that we have opportunity to walk on. So it's more important that we focus on those three, the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that we focus on them than we focus on us. Does that make sense? Because otherwise we can become very works-based and we can be very focused on our, our ability to do what needs to be done. So I think we have to focus on first what God did for us or what's been done for us so that we have the proper platform to do the things that we're needing or are expected to do. Because there are things that we are supposed to do. But we have to keep the priority placed properly. We have to focus on what's been done first through the blood of Christ so that then I can do what I need to do as a result of what's been done, not as a way to create it myself. And hopefully that can take some pressure off of us, pressure off of you, pressure off of me from thinking that I have to be performance-based. God loves us, and he's done a lot of things for us. And it's my job to accept what he's done so that then I can properly do what I need to do. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's kind of the premise here that we need to say that so that now we can talk about priorities and our choices. So what I want to do today is I want, to, I want for us to understand the importance of our priorities and when we make them. The wise man determines his priorities while he is in the good times, as a way to determine the type of man he will be in the bad times. Let me say that again. The wise man determines his priorities while he is in the good times as a way to determine the type of man he will be in the bad times. All right, well, we're going to flesh this out. There's a lot of wisdom here in this little statement. Basically, it's the determination of setting godly priorities while I have the sanity of mind (laughs) in order to protect myself later 
when I might lose some of my sanity in the middle of a temptation or a trial. That's when we set our priorities is when I'm sane, (laughs) when I'm in a good place, when I have a proper understanding of who I am and who God is and I establish godly priorities and convictions through his word and I do that in order to protect myself because when the bad times come, I'm going to lose some of my sanity. Amen? Do you know what I'm talking about? You've been in those temptations or those trials when it gets so heavy and so hard that I just can't think straight? Well, if I have my priorities set in advance that I don't have to figure it out, I just go back to who I am and my, who I am is a godly person, who I am, I have godly priorities, I then can protect myself in the times when I'm insane. That's what we're trying to do. What's another word for, for, for priorities? Another word for priorities is conviction. Conviction can come across as a negative word, but it's not negative at all. A godly conviction is really a godly priority that's educated, that has godly background, that has a godly source. A conviction, the importance of a godly conviction is having an intentional set of godly convictions based on his word, not on my feelings, not on the culture around me, but my convictions are based on God's word and that will protect me from myself when I'm not thinking very clearly or when I'm insane. (laughs) Because we have moments of insanity, I believe. And I think that's when we need to know that who we stand on is a rock-solid person and his word is rock-solid. So today's context, I'll use the word priority and conviction um, interdependently. I will, I will use them. I'll mix them up, but it basically means the same thing. Godly priorities and godly convictions in the context of our discussion today are the same things, and they're very important to develop in one's life early on. It's more than simply having convictions and having godly priorities are more than just simply protecting us in the bad times. But if we're really serious about establishing godly priorities and convictions in the good times, that we will then live by them in the good times and then also learn how to live by them in the bad times, we will find ourselves thriving, not just surviving. I think God wants us to thrive in this world, even in the bad times. He wants us to thrive. Many times I think we are just surviving, just trying to get through, and I get that. I understand that. But I think God has a plan for us to uh, thrive in the time. And, and I believe that as we set godly priorities and live by godly convictions, that God honors those that are willing to live by his standards. Understand God never fails and he never disappoints. He may not always prevent the bad times from coming. The trouble were promised in this life. God doesn't always prevent it from happening, but his promises are that he will never leave us alone in the process. He's with you, Joni, as you're going through cancer treatments. He's with us all as we're going through our financial issues or whatever. God has not left you alone. He he promises that he will get us through them. And as we are godly people, as we are truly having godly priority, he promises us in Romans 8.28, he says, and we know that in all things... Not some things, not in the easy things. 
He says that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's a promise. Remember that. Memorize that. Stand on that. Repeat that back to God if you have to. Say, Father, I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm submitting my heart to you. And you've told me that in all things, you work out for the good of those who love you. And I'm loving you. So I'm holding on to that promise. I want to give us an example this morning of how, how we can see this happening. Uh, I want to talk about Daniel. I want to set the stage a little bit here so we understand the life of Daniel. Daniel was a Jew born of a noble family, upper-class family. Daniel was well-educated. Daniel was a teenager when the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, came and captured Judah. And what was common at that time was that when the, a conquering king would come in, they would pillage uh, their, their, whoever they were conquering, and they would take all the good and, and strip the place bare. And so it was common there that, that in those days that they would also take the best of the best, including people. They would take the women, the children, whoever was the best, and they would you know, discard the others or make the other slaves or whatever. But Daniel here was um, of noble character. He was well-educated, and uh, he was taken into the service of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he and three other Hebrew children that we're going to talk about and others were brought into the, into the court of this king that was to be used to rule against their wishes. This was not something Daniel wanted to do. So let's pick it up in Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Let's read. I'll read this for you because it's hard to read. You can open your Bible. We're going to spend a lot of time in Daniel, so if you want to open your Bible, you can. It says, beginning at verse 3 of Daniel chapter 1, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, and well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Asherah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Asherah, Abednego. You might recognize the last names. So Daniel and his friends are now captured by King Nebuchadnezzar. They're taken into the service of this king. And we have to understand, this is a tragic event. I mean, this is not a good time in the time of Israel. Because Daniel and his family are being separated. In fact, the whole nation is being blown apart here. This king Bab- of king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, is not a good guy. And he's coming in and, and he's just um, conquering and he's pillaging. And he's, he's just taking over the, the country. I mean, this is, uh, this is like America. Imagine if America was overthrown by Russia or by Iran or some of our worst enemies. And they came in and they took your children. And they said, I'm taking, I'm taking Wade. And he's one of the best. I'm taking Wade, and he's going to be in the service of the king. Okay, and what this means to them, I mean, this is a tragic event. This is something that wasn't supposed to happen. And this is a big deal. But, but fortunately, it's not the end of the story. So let's keep reading a little bit. Let's start in verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. 
But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom, he, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Now obviously Daniel had determined something special in his life before he ever came into the service of King Nebuchadnezzar. Because what had happened here rocked Daniel's world. We have to understand how significant this is. That this was not in Daniel's plan. Daniel was only a teenager at this time. He was a young man, a teenager. But it wasn't his plan to be captured by King Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't his plan to be in a hostile environment. That his family was destroyed and he would probably never see his parents again. He would probably never see his siblings again. This was a big deal. He was kidnapped and taken captive. Yet this is what we see in Daniel. A well-established set of convictions and priorities that could not be taken by him even in the worst times of his life. How much faith do you think it took Daniel to have for him to believe in his convictions? I mean, he had a set of convictions that he wasn't going to defile himself with the king's food. Now, being a 14-year-old boy or a 15-year-old boy or whatever his age was, that's a pretty bold statement to make. How much faith do you think he had that he would really believe that God had a better plan for him and he was determined to follow it no matter what. Wow. Talk about having some convictions. Daniel was a victim, but yet he never adopted a victim mentality. Something we can learn from here. He clearly was an innocent victim, but he didn't develop a mentality of a victim. Because he had firmly set convictions in his life and priorities that these godly priorities and these convictions not only protected him, but they caused him to thrive in the midst of horrible conditions. How often is it, how quickly can we become a mentality of I'm a victim and I want to be treated like one? I'm a victim and therefore you owe me something. I'm a victim, therefore I deserve to be treated like one. See, Daniel didn't have that mentality. Daniel understood his situation, but he also understood his convictions, and he said, my God is bigger than this. And as I live according to the convictions and the priorities that I established when I was younger in the good times, that now that I have the bad times coming, I'm convinced that God is going to get me through this. I don't know how. I'm sure Daniel didn't know the future. I'm sure he wasn't omniscient here. I'm sure he had no idea what tomorrow was going to hold. But he was so convinced in his past, in his set of convictions, that he was willing to have faith to believe that God had him in his hand. Boy, there is great comfort for us today, folks. No matter what you're going through today, you establish convictions that you're not going to compromise. You're not going to give up. You're not going to let the enemy be a victor here, and you are not going to be a victim. Man, 
That is really good. Let's continue to read on. Daniel 1, chapter 15, beginning at 15. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To, the, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Now understand this. This is something that we need to th- also recognize that what's happening now they had a 10-day test of of vegetables and water and because it turned out well for them they said okay we'll continue to feed you water and vegetables for the next three years because he was three years in training here this didn't happen overnight so what i see here is something else that we can take away that these three israelite teenagers were in the midst of their peers, because they weren't the only four people that were, that were taken hostage or taken captive. There were many other Israelites. We don't know how many. It doesn't say. But for three years, Daniel and these three other friends had to put up with peer pressure from the other Israelite boys to say, hey, guys, what are you doing? Why aren't you eating like the rest of us? Who do you think you are? Are you special? I mean, I can't even imagine the what they had to put up with in that situation because they were being treated special. And there was a lot of pressure for them to, to, to succumb to the culture even of other good people. And I see this so much in our Christian world today that we have the pressure to surrender to the culture of the other good Christians because we are a Christian country the America. We were established on Christian principles and so much of Christian ideas and ideologies are really, the American ideals and culture is really not Christian anymore, but yet we call ourselves Christian. You know what I'm talking about? And so it's very difficult for us sometimes to stand up against our peers, those that may would be a Christian in the workplace but maybe not act like it. Maybe there's not fruit of Christianity in their lives, but there's a lot of pressure on us to surrender and succumb to what they're doing so that they can be ex- we can be accepted by them. I'm sure Daniel and the three other friends had a lot of peer pressure this, throughout that three-year period of time to stay the course and just drink the water, eat the vegetables while everybody else is doing what they're doing, partying on, doing what they're doing, and they're just staying the course. What happened here? Verse 18, at the end... At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into the service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, or Asheriah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So obviously, their faith was put in the right source. God came through for them. So Daniel was prospering here, and the other three guys were, gonna, were prospering, and we're going to come back to Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in a few minutes. See, these young men, they were set here to be brainwashed. They were brought into the service not to live in the identity that they had as, an Isra- as Israelites, but they were to be brainwashed to be Babylonians. 
they came in to fall under the teaching and the culture of the Babylonian culture and all that that had to offer. We see beginning in, in verse 4 and 5, you go back to that, and the person assigned to them, he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to be enter the king's service. They were to be firmly assimilated to be a Babylonian. They were to lose their identity of Israelites. That was the plan. Three years was a lot of time to brainwash, and they can do that. It can be done. But Daniel and their friends, and his friends had a set of convictions so firmly established in the good times that they knew that any form of compromise would weaken them and they would end up being destroyed. The strategy of the king was to assimilate these young men into the Babylonian culture and to remove the Jewish context, the Jewish God-like character from them. That was the plan. What do we take away from that? Applying this to today, to what Satan is trying to do for us, our enemy wants to do the same thing. He wants us to compromise godly ideals. He takes the godly culture And he wants to take the convictions thereof and he wants to replace it with the culture of the world. Just like King Nebuchadnezzar was trying to replace the Jewish culture in those boys' lives with the culture of the Babylonians, the enemy today is trying to change us, Christian people. That's why we're in a battle today. That's why it's not easy at times to be a Christian because we're in a battle for our values. We're in a battle to hold priorities. The world we live in is a world of relative truth and continual compromise. Where once may have stood a a firm and resolute person on on a moral issue of some type, after a single compromise is made, yeah, there may be a little bit of guilt, a little bit of feeling bad, but after you make the first compromise, how much easier is it to make the second compromise? And how much easier to make the third and the fourth and the fifth? And before long, you don't even have a conviction anymore because we've compromised all of our values to fit into the culture so that we don't stand out. Listen very closely. This is exactly what the enemy wants to do. This is his strategy. He wants to take away your godly convictions. He wants to thrive in that area in your life, and he wants to steal and destroy everything that's in you that says God it rains. God is first. He wants to come in and he wants you to begin compromising everything. That's his strategy. He wants to take a once strong Christian person and he wants to destroy your reputation amongst the people. He wants you to compromise various situations. He wants to make you a leader of unrighteousness. That's what his plan is. That's what his strategy is. And just like King Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to assimilate Daniel and his three friends, to use their God-given capabilities to lead the Babylonians, the enemy wants to do the same thing in our lives today. Now, is it obvious? Can, can we see that? Is it, can, can you see how the enemy works? Can you see how he wants to destroy um, fathers and mothers and leaders and Christian leaders and pastors and teachers and whoever? He wants to destroy their influence and he wants to take what was, what was once leading godly people down a godly path and he wants to destroy their reputation. And he wants to lead him now into paths of unrighteousness. That's his plan. But what's left of the compromiser? 
If, if you find yourself compromising or if you know of a compromiser, what's left of? What's their, what do they look like? A compromiser is a shell of once was a tower of godly character. Where once the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control was evident and what ruled their life now is replaced with guilt, shame, unrest, impatience, anxieties, hatred, unfaithfulness, arrogance, and an overall attitude that anything goes. You see, if you lose godly culture, if you lose the fruit of the Spirit, it's replaced with something that is opposite. Not something compatible, not something complementary. It's replaced, if you had peace, you're going to have unrest. If you were kind, you're going to have anger. If you didn't have any regrets, you're going to have guilt and shame. That's what sin does. That's what the enemy does when, he's, when he comes in to assimilate you. And what is the outcome? See, there is no hope for a compromiser. Let me tell you right now, there is no hope. If that's what your life is, if your life is built on compromise, there is no hope if you stay there. I want to skip to Revelation to tell the, to the end of the story real quick. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, cowardly, what does that mean? The cowardly, when you look at that word, that's defined as those that are not bold enough to stand firm in godly convictions and priorities in the throes of life. The cowardly are the ones that end up compromising in the temptation to sin. The cowardly, not, we're just not talking about a brave soul. We're talking about one that compromises. The compromiser is in the same um, list as murderers and sexually immoral and those that pra- practice magic arts and idolaters and liars. See, to be a cowardly or to be a compromiser is a serious thing, folks. It's not just playing with the enemy a little bit and doing what you want to have your little thrills. A compromiser of godly principles and convictions is serious business. So let's go back to Daniel's story. What was wrong with the food? Why did they have to refuse eating the best the king would offer? I mean, they were going to be fed the choicest food in the kingdom. What's wrong with that? A lot of things come to us in good packages. It looks really good, so really, what's wrong with it? Well, the problem with this food is that in the Babylonian culture, many times the feasts like this were all dedicated to their gods, their idols. And so by participating in eating the God, those foods and those wine and all that drink, it was a form of worship to that godliness, to their ungodly gods. And so to them, to, the, to, to Daniel, that would have been a form of compromise, of worship, because now he's not worshiping the God. He is worshiping the Babylonian gods by participating in eating the king's food. See, to the other folks, they might look and say, come on, Daniel, seriously? It's just food. It's just a piece of meat. Why aren't you going to eat it? And Daniel says, because it's the principle of what's behind it. 
The compromiser won't look at the principle. The compromiser looks at, well, everybody else is doing it, so it must be okay for me too. But Daniel had already drawn the line in his life to say, I am not going to compromise anything. I don't care how small it is. I don't care what it looks like. I have established convictions in my heart, and I'm not willing to cross the line, and I'm willing to go to any length necessary to refuse to compromise my God's convictions. So by refusing the king's food, obviously he had to eat. Daniel and the boys, they couldn't live by starving themselves, so he brought another option. He said, bring us water and vegetables because that's not part of that culture, not part of that worship. So bring me that and we'll we'll be fine because I trust my Lord to do that. And that was the food that they were given to eat. He resolved not to defile himself in any way. It's interesting. I I see it's interesting here how Daniel was able to do that in a respectful manner. Daniel wasn't a jerk about it. He was respectful, and he said, I'll tell you what, just bring us some water and some vegetables. He didn't say, bring me something better. He said, no, bring me something less than what you're eating, and my God will sustain us in that. We need to learn how to be humble, folks. We need to learn, as in our time of standing against the culture, we need to know how to do it in a respectful manner, in a way that is humble, in a way that is not demanding greater, but saying, I'll settle for less because I know God can provide. There's another lesson for us there. So I want to take three things really away from this. I know time's slipping by here, so I've got to hurry on. Three things I want to take away from the example of their godly priorities and, and, and their convictions. Number one, how important it is to establish priorities early in life when things are good before the battle begins. Number one. Number two, they are not to be compromised no matter the pressure, no matter what's coming against you. And then number three, it's easier to stand as a group than it is alone. So let's look at these three things real quick. The first thing is, Establishing our priorities early in life when things are good. I, there was a study that was written, and I read this in the, in the magazine Psychology Today, and this states this. The research in clinical practice clearly shows that health habits develop very early in life and once well-established are exceedingly difficult to change. This is why it's so critically important to maintain a healthy diet and exercise routine while avoiding smoking and over-drinking at young ages. Once problems and poor health habits emerge, they tend to be very long-lasting. For example, research has indicated that 97% of people who lose weight will regain it all within five years. Yes, behavior really is hard to change. Right? And then it goes on to say, I had a recent patient in my clinical practice that binge drinks. Since he's a college student, he thinks that it is normative for people of his age to drink heavily, engage in sexual hookups, and party frequently. He says that most of his friends of similar age do it. He believes that once he completes college, his drinking behavior will significantly change for the better. I hope that he's right, but I think that he's wrong. Research indicates that drinking habits get formed during the late teen, early adulthood period and don't change so easily. Now, what I found so interesting about this is that this is not a Christian publication. And the research was not a Christian, in, in a Christian context. Yet the result is exactly what the Bible predicts. <laughs> um, e- human behavior lines up with God's word, whether we'd like to realize it many times or not. So what is the battle that most of us will face when it comes to establishing our priorities and our convictions? 
Our battles most likely are going to be in our own temptations that comes from our own mind and under our own control. Very rarely will any of us face a battle from another person or our government when it comes to our priorities being threatened or controlled. I mean, we're not in Daniel's time right now, yet. But I think for most of us in this room, the battles we face are from within ourselves. And I think we need to recognize that they come from within ourselves. We need to face the fact that our own worst enemy is ourselves when it comes to compromise and giving in so that we don't lose the battle giving ourselves a bye. Oh, I'm okay. No. It's important that I understand the seriousness of consequences before I get, before I get into the battle of the temptation. Psalms 119, blessed, first one, blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong but follow his waves. You have, you have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Blessed are those whose ways. The earlier in life that we learn this concept, the earlier in life that we learn to make godly priorities, we'll have a better life, a more fulfilled life. But at the same time, I will also say it's never too late to start. So it's better to get on board now when you can. God has established for us a good path and a good plan. And it's all designed for our best interest the wise person chooses it. Okay, the second thing I want to talk about is these godly priorities and convictions are not to be compromised under pressure. I think we can all agree that a major fall in a person's life doesn't happen overnight. Most of the time, if not all the time, it happens slowly. We may not see all the little things in a person's life that will become evident later when the big fall happens but I think that pretty much we know that little compromises have to happen along the way before the big fall happens. And, and when we do see a person fall, I think we all will often ask ourselves, man, what could I have done to help them? What did, I should have seen that one coming. You know, there are those kinds of questions. It's, it's the little compromises that sneak into one's life that are the deadly one, the proverbial beginning of the end. You know what I'm talking about? Small consequences result in a devastating fall. Compromise always begins with the little ones first. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 15. The little foxes are ruining the vineyards. Catch them, for the grapes are all in blossom. It's the little things that sneak into our lives that we don't think are serious. The little fox comes in. Oh, he's not going to eat much, but he can ravage the whole vineyard. And that can happen in our lives, too. That little compromise. Oh, it's not a big deal. But James understands it. James understands it. In, in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, James says that, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away, by, dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after evil or desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James is describing the process of compromise with our own evil heart. It starts within me. It starts within you, and then we play with it. We don't think it's too serious, and we give, it a, we give it a place to live, and we let it grow. And that bitterness or that temptation or whatever that root is begins to take root in our lives, and before long, it's producing fruit. He says, don't let it happen. And I think you know what I'm talking about. It's the little compromises. It's that, it's that second look at that beautiful woman. Uh, it's that little white lie to cover up an indiscretion. 
It's the little false impression I give to get the order. Yeah. That maybe I'm stealing time from my employee. Little things like that. Or whatever else it is that is seemingly small, but once the process begins, once I start to learn to compromise, it's hard to stop. Do you see what I'm saying? The slippery slope gets slipperier and slipperier and slipperier. So why go down the path? We need to establish our convictions, establish our priorities before we go on the date, before we take the job, before we go in to get the order. I'm going to convince I am not going to do anything that would be wrong in God's sight in order for me to get this order. I've been a salesman. I know what that's like. I've been in that world. And I've been on a few dates. (laughs) And I know what that's like too. And for young people here today or that are listening, man, make that choice up front. I am not going to defile myself sexually before that marriage day. Do you do that? I'm telling you, it's going to be hard, but great, great rewards. My Bible commentary says it this way. Ungodly desires can lead to moral deception and the end to spiritual death. This means that if we do not rely on the Holy Spirit for strength to overcome selfish and ungodly desires, we begin to believe Satan's lies and fall into his snares until we forsake God's standards entirely. The key here is not me holding myself up by my bootstraps. It's by me believing and empowering, allowing the power of the Holy Spirit to give me the strength. This is why it's, about, it's more about Jesus than about me. I have my responsibility, but I can't do it on my own, and neither can you. I cannot live a life of righteousness in my own ability. It's a God thing. That's why we need the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit over and over in our lives on a daily basis. If I'm not going to submit to a temptation, I need Jesus to help me to get through that. Finally, number three, it's easier to stand as a group than it is alone. And I want to explain this a little bit. If you go back now and look at let's look, let's talk about Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They were put into a pretty difficult spot as well. And I think that I can say that the spot they were put in is harder than a spot that I'll ever be put into, or you as well, probably, because they had a decision to make here at this point in time in their life to either bow to the king or to be thrown into the fire. Bow to the king or to die. And I think we know the story. It's, I'm not going to read this, but it's Daniel chapter 3, and, and it's the, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the king gives an edict that at the sound of the trumpet, every person will bow to the king, and if you don't bow, then the, your, your fate is that you're going to be killed. You're going to be thrown into the fire. And, and so um, the sound was, the, the horn was, was, was sounded, and these three young uh, Israelite men, after... Um, their time of service. They were supposed to be loyal to the king. They were supposed to bow down. They did not. And um, it was told to the king that they did not. And he said, all right, I'm really sorry to say it, but fire the fire up stronger and hotter. So they did, and and we know the story. But here's what I want to say. Can you imagine what was going on in their minds at this point in time? Can you imagine the conflict that these three young men had because they're just like you and I. They're not superheroes. They're just people like you and I that had a conviction. And they had a godly priority that says we are not going to compromise. We didn't compromise with the food. We didn't compromise through anything else in the training up to this point in time. And they were built up 
in their life of uncompromised so that when they got to the big test, their life, they were ready for it. And they said, no, I'm not going to do it. Now, here's the question. What would have happened if one of them would have caved? What would have happened if Shadrach said, boys, I'm not into this dying thing. I'm bound to the king. So Shadrach does that in Abednego and Meshach, and they look at him and say, whoa, what are you doing, man? I better bow too. I, I, man, if you're bowing, I'm bowing. You know, what would have happened? Isn't it easier to stand together? And, and we don't know what would have happened because the Bible doesn't say, but the Bible does say they stood together. They stood in unity together. That's why I need you. And that's why you need others in this church because we need to be stand together. There's strength when we're in unity together. Hebrews chapter 10. Jackie, if you'd come, please. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 and 25. It says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I just want to say, guys, that it's going to get harder. Time is moving quickly to the end. All the things that are happening in our culture, in our society, around the world, is pointing to the prophecies that we are living in the end days. I don't know how many days we have left. I don't know, and you don't either. But I'm going to tell you that it's going to be a lot easier if we stand together. If we lock arms and stand together and say, no, we have godly convictions, and as a body, we're following godly convictions together. That if you see one of your brothers or sisters starting to fall, pick them up. Don't go kick them. <laughs> Don't go judge them. But go to them and say, hey, can I help you? How you doing? I see a little bit of a weakness here. Are you okay? See, be, be bold enough with your love for somebody that you're willing to risk a little that you're willing to go out on the limb a little bit for your brother or sister because you love them, because there's genuine love. Genuine love tells the truth because you don't want them to fall. So go to your brother or sister and say, hey, can I help you? How you doing? And then if somebody comes to you, and if you're falling a little bit, and if somebody comes, how you doing? Be honest with them and say, well, I'm struggling a little bit here. It's okay. It's okay to struggle. It's okay not to be okay. I'm telling you that right now. Don't put on a face. It's okay to let people know you're hurting because they want to help you. That's what we learn from standing together. That's why it's important that we have these times when times are good that we talk about responsibilities, we talk about priorities, we talk about convictions, and we learn God's word about what they are and we say we're not going to defile them, we're not going to compromise them when the times get tough because the times are going to get tough. I don't say that to scare you. I say that to encourage us. So this morning, where are we? Where are we on our walk Where are you on your walk? Are you without compromise of your faith? Are you standing firm in the things of God? Are you committed to the brothers and sisters of this body? Are you encouraging them and do you want to be encouraged by them? A lot of people say, I can be a Christian on my own. Well, maybe so, but why would you want to be? Why? 
would you want to be? There's so much more when we come together. Don't let the enemy deceive you into thinking you can be all you can be by yourself. We need each other. Can you see the importance of why we need to be first committed to be uncompromising and then secondly, that we need to be um, like the three Hebrew children here and that we need to encourage each other on in their life? I pray so. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for this example that we've been given by Daniel and his three Hebrew children of what they had to put up with and how they did it. And I pray, God, that we would learn from their, their challenges. We would learn by their victories. God, I pray that we would be strengthened by each other. I pray, God, that we would bring the power of the Holy Spirit into our lives, that we don't feel like we have to do this alone, that we're not in this alone. We are here together. We're here, first of all, to honor you above all things, above, for the things that you've done so that I can do the things that you've asked me to do. So help us, Lord, in this, I pray. Encourage us. Strengthen us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jackie, would you lead us in our song as we close today? Stand with me if you will. No matter how small my yard may be, I'm giving you all there is to me. No matter how small my yard may be, I'd gladly waste it your feet you're beautiful you're worth it all you're beautiful worth it all beautiful you're beautiful you're worth it all you're beautiful Worth it all, beautiful. Father, we just thank you for who you are today. You truly are beautiful and wonderful. And we are just holding that up as our standard, that we want to be with you, not against you. We want to learn your standards. We want to learn your principles. We want to have your priorities. We want to have your convictions. And Father, I pray that you would establish them firmly and strongly in our, in our lives today that we walk out of here stronger than what we were when we came in. And we look to each other here. We say, lock arms with me. Will your brother and sister, can we do this together? Can we walk this path together? Can we journey life together here? God, I pray that you would strengthen us. And, we pray that we, and I pray that we would honor you and we would give you all the praise and all the glory because it's all due you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be blessed today.